2006, former RAF Elvington Air Base in Yorkshire, North England. Top Gear presenter Richard Hammond thunders down the runway in a jet-powered dragster, reaching nearly 315 miles per hour and unofficially breaking the British land speed record. He goes again and again down the runway. Each time, GPS telemetry is tracking the dragster's journey. After a successful run up the strip, the only requirement for breaking the record is to complete a return journey. Building speed to 319 miles per hour, suddenly there's a blowout on the front tyre. Without even time to deploy a parachute, the car veers onto the grass and flips. Having crashed at 288 miles per hour, Hammond has to wait for the momentum to slow. Skidding across the grass on the roll cage as his visor was forced open, and earth filled his helmet. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Tim Sheehan. And I'm Alex Conacher. In this episode, we're going to look beyond the crash that landed the vampire jet car headlines on the front pages of newspapers across the world. Instead, we want to look at the history of this wonderful amalgamation of engineering. In 1966, Bedfordshire saw the opening of Santa Pod Raceway, Europe's first permanent drag racing track. Fast forwards to the 70s and the beginning of the modern form of drag racing. Santa Pod wanted to move with the times and needed something to attract a new generation of fans. Move away from the typical top fuel dragsters and funny cars. They wanted to build a jet car. So we had this dream of building some jet cars and Scorpion was the first one we decided to build and they asked if I would help build it with them because I knew a little bit about engines. This is Andrew Hurdle, one of the original builders of the first jet car Scorpion and later Hellbender and Vampire, then Midnight Cowboy. Built with Santa Pod Raceway and his friends Kieran Westman and Bootsy Allen Herridge. Because it was such a spectacular car, we built a lorry to go with it and we travelled all across Europe, presenting it at Formula One meetings and Le Mans and all over the place. But we noticed some problems with Scorpion because it was massive, very difficult to handle and the engine was too powerful for the car because I wasn't getting up to the full power of the engine until almost the race was over. With drag racing's reliance on accelerating off the line quicker than your opponent, they needed to optimise the power-to-weight ratio. They needed a car with similar speed and capabilities, but an instant hit of power. The solution? Twin dragsters, Hellbender and Vampire. The group started scavenging for parts to build their new cars. Living near RAF Kemble, Andrew learned that the Rolls-Royce Orpheus engines that had been the beating heart of the Red Arrow's Nats were to be sold off as the Red Arrows began flying the Hawk jets from BAE Systems. Still reliable after years of service, they were just what the team needed. There was no other aircraft that were using that particular version of the Orpheus at the time. So just by looking at the auction sites, I managed to get hold of five initially and then another two later on for very little money. You know, they're about £150, £200 each. Making Hellbenders afterburner themselves, Andrew managed to secure vampires second-hand. 
when we came to do Vampire, a couple of Jaguar aircraft had crashed in Scotland doing an exercise and I managed to get hold of the afterburners from Farnborough after they'd done their examination of why they crashed. But with little aeronautical engineering knowledge, Andrew would attend talks and masterclasses at the National Gas Turbine Establishment in Pystock. Also meeting Noel Penny, one of the big jet engine manufacturers. Plus, his proximity to RAF Kemble meant Andrew could visit his friend, an engineering officer, for lessons and books. Kieran used to work at Rolls-Royce and he was an engineer there working on the Pegasus engine. And that's quite close to the Red Arrow engine. As the amalgamation of machinery and knowledge came together, this community project showcased the feats of excellence that can derive from multidisciplinary engineering. Yes, yeah, the art of the possible, let's try something. Is there a different way? Will it work? You know, until you try, you don't know. And it, it was an engineering challenge. At the end of the day, it was a challenge. It was always for show. There was speak about land speed records because it sort of is one of those attractive things that people like to talk about. Certainly we thought about doing it in the early days with Scorpion, but then as time progresses you actually realise the difficulty of it. Because if you want to do it in the UK and you've only got a runway that's 1.8 miles long, and you've got to sustain an average speed over a mile, that obviously the mile's got to be in the middle because part of the rules are you have to turn around and come back the other way. Now, Scorpion had more than enough power to do it, but certainly the thing it couldn't do was stop in that time because it was so heavy. We actually put tyres on Scorpion that would have run up to those speeds and we spent a lot of time testing them and we took the weight off them. Hellbender and Vampire, we never really thought about it because, uh, for, as land speed cars, because the tyres weren't good enough for it. There was less knowledge of aerodynamic engineering at that time, so other aspects like this were the focus. Developing the distinctive sleek shape of the cars involved a far simpler approach. Short marks on the floor at the workshop where they fabricated a chassis around the engine because as, as you know, there's no driven wheels on this dragster. It's all driven by the thrust of the jet engine. So um, it was literally was drawn out on the floor, welded up, chassis created, um, bits that were available. This is Phil Davis, one of the owners in the Vampire Syndicate. And uh, I got one of those fateful calls on a, a Thursday whilst at work saying, do you want to buy the car, yes or no? And uh, I immediately said yes, and then realised what I'd uh, committed myself to, so contacted a number of friends, and very quickly, within uh, an hour or so, formed a syndicate of eight of us that uh, took ownership of the vehicle. If you look at pictures of it, it looks like a dragster that a child would draw. That is the great thing about it. There are many differences between Scorpion and the racing pair. The curves of the Scorpion with its spade-shaped front end, almost hourglass-style body and significant wheel arches covering the tyres. Then the sleek straight-line design of Vampire with its small front wing and exposed tyres and wheel axles. But the biggest difference? We had this thing called an afterburner 
uh, fitted to it, which gives you instant acceleration without having to rev the engine up. Picture the cylindrical engine casings on a plane. Within that is a bit on the front that looks like a pointy nose. This is the air intake and it helps draw the air in smoothly. If you're looking at how many litres of air it takes in a second, that's over 30,000 litres. It then travels through a compressor to increase the pressure and temperature. This bit looks like multiple turbines aligned one behind the other that get smaller and closer together and they all have lots of little blades. As the air is forced into the combustion chamber, fuel and some extra air are injected and ignited. The leftover oxygen and other hot gases pass through a second set of turbines, opposite to the first, that reduce the air pressure. The resulting hot gases pass through a second set of turbines. These are the opposite to the first set and work to reduce the air pressure. The gases then expand through the exhaust nozzle, producing a high velocity jet stream moving at roughly 700 miles per hour. As these gases travel into the afterburner, more fuel is injected. Igniting this results in a combustion process that increases the temperature of the air exiting the afterburner and the nozzle mass flow. You put about uh, two litres of fuel a second into it in the case of this engine and light it and that gives the gas another big boost of speed. While this doesn't allow for much more than 700 miles per hour, increasing the diameter of the nozzle to be fully open gave the Vampire a roughly 35% increase in power. And, and the nice thing about it is that rather than waiting for the engine to rev up, which always has a finite amount of time to do it, this is instant. You can be putting fuel into the manifold and then when you want to go, you just light it. And so you go from a very little amount of thrust to a huge amount of thrust just by pressing a button. So what we're seeing here is a thrust of about uh, 2,600-2,700 pound thrust. So this is when the engine is running at 105%. Igniting the afterburner more than doubles this. Sitting on the start line with the engine revving, you press that button and you're gone, whether you like it or not. You know, we were doing really dangerous things. When you think of the things we were doing, and we, you know, we were quite young and naive in many ways. We used to have the odd explosion and things. So, you know, we were pushing the limits by a big margin, and of course, some things could could happen. Fast forward 40 years, and the Vampire has its land speed record, but has been massively damaged by the Hammond crash. Now, with new owners, but the same passion. The rebuild begins. It was basically a rolling chassis. So when we brought it back, various panels were still missing and we had to, to basically start from assuming nothing. From my perspective, it was, it was shock and awe when I first saw it. I'd forgotten how big it was in terms of its length. It was a project that, what have we started? It's going to be fun, but what have we started here in terms of the, ref the restoration of the vehicle? Here is John Clayton, an engineer and part of the syndicate that owns the car. We kind of did an inventory of what we thought we need, where to start. An engine, missing body panels, 
miscellaneous bits of pipes and plumbing with no clue as to how they attach and paintwork that had seen better days. Not to mention its difference from more typical car restorations. Firstly, the 30-foot long car posed some storage challenges, having previously been housed in a garage with a hole in the wall for the nose to protrude from. Covered in tarpaulin. There had been some work done. Um, the person we acquired it from was Roy Phelps. Um, his father actually ran and owned Santa Pod. And he and his son um, put together the chassis again. So they basically straightened out the, the front corner. Uh, they, they straightened out the back axle, which had been bent in the impact. Um, they put a new roll bar on it. None of the jet engine had been addressed and uh, the cockpit. Various panels were still missing. And um, we had to, to basically start from assuming nothing. Fortunately, Roy had been involved with Andrew and Kieran during the initial construction. An expert in fibreglass moulding, Roy could recreate the body parts he still had moulds for and take new ones off of the existing panels where needed. So over the last two, two three years now, we've, we've actually recreated the bodywork as well as it was when the car was first built. So there's been a lot of synergy here. Rebuilding the rest of the jet car, however, took a bit more legwork. The challenge was understanding it, not actually doing it. Once we understood it and broke it down to its component parts, so to speak, we could look at how we could address the particular issue. First thing really was to strip it down and see what we, what we, what we had to do. And basically we had an engine, uh, some damaged body panels, the jet pipe with few bits and pieces that were missing with lots of pipe, pipe work and plumbing. Uh, which we didn't really know exactly where it all went at the time. And uh, we had uh, also the car in itself was pretty tired. It, it had a few bumps and bashes, obviously, after the crash. But the actual, a lot of the pipework had deteriorated quite considerably. The majority of components had to be stripped, stored and either renovated or replaced, right down to the nuts and bolts. For the engine, this meant stripping out the pipework, cleaning the nuts and bolts, replacing them with what spares they could find. Each element that needed it was pressure tested, and after installing the engine, it was time to fit the jet pipe and afterburner. With the afterburner cut out at Richard Hammond's crash, the syndicate were fortunate that Roy had a new jet pipe manufactured. But the, the, it didn't fit the, the afterburner that we had. That was my first lessons in working with Inconel. Uh, you cannot drill it with a high-speed carbide tip drill. It's impossible. Employing local assistance to weld up and re-thread the jet pipe. We were then able to fit AeroQuip style um, fittings to it with stainless outers to protect from heat. Finally enabling them to fit the afterburner. And uh, we managed to plumb the rest of the afterburner in as well. And then the rest of it really was stripping down every component that we were confident of taking apart. Um, we didn't go into the, the real guts of the engine, but we stripped just about everything else, all the running gear, everything else. Everything had to be numbered and kept in bins and uh, various bits, uh, different people were doing responsible for different bits. So actually keeping a track on who'd sent what where was always interesting. Uh, trying to find out, and where did we put that? and part of the repair included protective paint, 
kindly donated by the original manufacturers in signature aircraft grey and painstakingly applied with an artist's paintbrush. And this wasn't the only help they had. When COVID restrictions eased a little bit, it became a lot easier. We were able to, uh, to uh, work collectively on the car, as it were. In fact, while the car was stored in a working garage, the collective effort grew to involve local members of the public who'd see it when they brought their cars in for an MOT. I think everybody got engaged in it. Different people from the town saw it and uh, it got sort of fascinated. We got lots of offers of different help from different people. Um, yeah, lots of people got involved, gave us little hints with different things and different, different help. And uh, we begged and borrowed various bits and pieces. Uh, so yeah, so it was a, very much a collective effort. And a surprising variety too. The steering box of the car, and imagine it doesn't do much steering. It basically taxis to the start line or did taxi to the start line. And then it went in a straight line. So as long as you could make it stay straight, and mostly that was aerodynamics, to be frank, you know, the thrust and the, the tail fin, um, the car would run. But when we got back to our yard, we realised that the steering box had been damaged or was, was, was worn out. It's hard to say it'd been standing for a long time. But in the yard, uh, one of the syndicate members had another Reliant Robin chassis which happened to have a steering box on it. He had earmarked that for a soapbox that we were going to take part in. And we are going to use the chassis as a, as a basis of some sort of space shuttle or boat or something that we could race down a hill. But we very quickly and quietly swapped the steering boxes over. So the one that, <laughs> that didn't vampire was originally earmarked to be on a soapbox. We've had so much support from other local businesses and other local sort of friends and volunteers that, that we all know. Um, and I think without that, we couldn't have probably done it without all the skills and, and knowledge base that we've got. That was Joy Hoyle, another owner in the syndicate and one who cares for the accounts. Thankfully, We've received quite a lot of money in sponsorship um, from some companies. And, and if anyone wants to look, they could go onto our website, um, vampirejetcar.com, and see our list of current sponsors. And we've been really, yeah, really pleased uh, and grateful for the money that we've received from the sponsors. We've got some new tyres on it, finally. That was quite nice as well. Again, we had a, a sponsor came on board and very kindly uh, uh, sponsored the tyres for us because we had the original tyres from 20, I think they are probably 20, more than 20 years old now. But even with the new bits and pieces and sponsorships, they wanted to pay homage to the many events in Vampire's life. From keeping the dents in various body parts, including the oil tank courtesy of Hammond's crash, to the iconic yellow from the land speed record, rather than return to the Vampire's original black paintwork. They've even given the car some modern new additions. Like a new logo, created by a local graphic designer, retaining the original logo's comic book styling, but making it more distinctive. And once all the necessary tweaks were complete, it was time to restart the engine. When we first did a start, we found that the thermocouple had failed. And um, a brother of one of the syndicate members actually runs a uh, a heating company. So he went dashing back to his warehouse and he found a thermocouple from 
a normal oil boiler that was in spec in terms of the size of the thing that it would thread into the engine but the readings we had to we had to change so we basically calculated literally there and then on the day what the outputs of that thermocouple would mean in terms of the temperature that we needed to understand and we started the car up using a central heating thermocouple with Andrew and Kieran there to oversee. So a few coughs and splut splutters. It burst into life after 14 or 15 years. And that was a real breakthrough, I think, that, that was back in March 2020. And I think as much as the noise, uh, I think it is the feel. I think a lot of these things you feel in your, your sort of tummy and everything. Uh, when, when these things fire up. Since then, the Syndicate have made plenty of plans for the future and show the car off at every available moment. And then when we got the afterburner running, which is when you see the flame, the afterburner runs uh, burns three litres of fuel per second. So that's incredibly expensive to run in terms of fuel cost. So that's why we can only do short bursts. But these short bursts are plenty to draw a crowd. And that crowd helps raise money for the cost of the car and to go to local charities. I think the, the, the value really has been in the power of the restoration and the guy's time uh, in, in doing that. And also in the, the, the time that was spent now um, with Phil, promoting it, finding places that we can take the car, where we can show it off to people and, um, and display it and give it a future and uh, keep the history of it going this particular car managed to achieve some excellent records and and is still um, the British land speed record holding car um, and I think that's incredible I think the fact is that record is held for 20 years as an official record um, even though some cars have been quicker to still hold the official British land speed record I think is absolutely amazing yeah I suppose my best story about it is that we've given it a new lease of life that we have restored it, that quite a small group of us have got the vision and the skills to actually come together and restore it and to show it to, and to promote it and let people see this absolutely amazing piece of history. Vampire's life has in essence been dedicated to the excitement that can come from a crazy mix of enthusiasts and engineers. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Jane Sophia, co-hosted by me, Alex Conacher, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, editing and series supervision by John Young, and our own high-speed hero is Rory the Hamster Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.